Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, welcome to the program. It's the October 24th uh, rendition. Uh, and I had intended to begin the program today uh, talking about something that I, uh, like so many other media outlets uh, yesterday, failed to do, which is to mention that George Soros had been the recipient of a pipe bomb in his uh, mailbox at his home in uh, New York State. And and I remember thinking last night, wait a minute, George Soros <laughs> had a pipe bomb in his mailbox and nobody was talking about that yesterday. And I began to think of how differently media and I don't think it's my perception, but how media make mountains out of seeming molehills. For instance, um, Sarah Sanders gets screamed at at a restaurant. And my God, all hell breaks loose. Uh, somebody said something unpleasant to... Uh, to some other uh, Republican in a an elevator. My God, the Democratic mob strikes again. And I mean, I, and and George Soros gets a pipe bomb <laughs> in his mailbox and crickets. So I was thinking of bringing that up today and talking again about media and how they are so quick to follow narratives that the Republicans set up and so disinclined to seemingly pay attention to something that on the other side, that if it were on the Republican side, would get a lot of attention. And so on my way here, I had turned on news, and I find that um, now the Secret Service has intercepted similar explosive devices that were sent to Barack Obama at his office in Washington, D.C., and Hillary Clinton at her home in Chappaqua, New York. Not far, by the way, from where George Soros' place is. And now there's, you know, I mean, that was breaking news as I just a moments ago. <coughs> so I'm wondering, does this, does this displace the current narrative of the Democrats being somehow, you know, violent and uh, a mob when there's, first of all, no indication of that? But 
so the FBI is on this now. The Secret Service is on this now. George Soros's facilities, his um, are are being uh, got given extra security in New York City, and um, I just wonder. about media doing what they do. How every, I looked, I checked out cable news this morning and they're all got breathless reporters following along with these desperate Hondurans and others who have joined the caravan. And of course coverage of that plays directly into the White House's midterm playbook. George Soros, who is demonized by the right, never been quite sure what the horrible thing that he did is since he's a um, a philanthropist and uh, what he tends to do with his riches is uh, support uh, his foundation which is which is called the Open Society Foundation and its intent is to spread democracy <laughs> around the world and so I that foundation is active in I, I mean hundreds of nations all over the world he he does uh, support generally the Democratic Party and uh, criminal justice reform, immigration reform. He's uh, set up a number of programs specifically aimed at aiding black and Latino young men. And he is like considered evil incarnate <laughs> on the right. He also is a Jew and as such has been one of the, you know, totem Jews for the uh, anti-Semitic right, which of course includes many residents of the uh, White House. So that horrible man, George Soros, <coughs> has a, <coughs> a pipe bomb in his mailbox and um, now <coughs> excuse me, the intent was to do the same to Barack Obama <coughs> and the Clintons, excuse me. Um, now those, uh, those incendiary devices did not, <coughs> ah, did not get to uh, Obama or Hillary's mailboxes because as um, Secret Service uh, clients I'm not sure what they're called they are um, their their mail anything coming to them gets uh, waylaid and screened and so both these devices that were found um, I guess today or maybe yesterday were intercepted by Secret Service personnel in Washington DC um, so 
I guess um, the right wing media has been floating uh, the uh, lie, it's what they traffic in, that George For Soros funded these uh, migrants that are in this growing caravan heading north in Mexico. That is unclear. I mean, that is un untrue. And I return to the question that I posed to my sister yesterday. How do you fight back with not just one, not just Donald Trump, how do you fight back when the president, the leadership of the Congress, big hunks of media are lying with a consistency that is used to be breathtaking. It isn't anymore. It's what they do. They traffic in constant lies. They say what they have to say to excite their voters. So while the Democrats have been diligently working their fingers to the bone for the last year targeting this election now in two weeks, the Republicans seemingly haven't done much of anything because uh, <coughs> while they play a long game in general, when it comes to something like an election like this, they, they keep their powder dry until literally just a few weeks before it when they unload their, their, <laughs> their lies, their fear-mongering, and excite the hell out of their base How do you fight a constant barrage of lies that are believed? And if not believed, they're, they're not discredited by those who support them. I really don't know how you do. I, I can't understand what the, the game plan would be if you're in a battle like this that is fought with words, <laughs> not weapons, unless occasional pipe bombs here and there, but a battle fought with words and one side simply <coughs> puts words together in whatever fanciful form will work for them, devoid of reality, and the other side continues to talk about reality. I don't know how you, how do you fight? We've tried the, that's a lie. <coughs> We've tried, oh, now he's gone too far. 
We've tried, well, surely this level of unbelievable outrage will. No. 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 How do you win when the rules don't apply to your opponent and only apply to you? How do you win when media seemingly have fallen into that, where they expect somehow our side to behave in a, what was always considered a normal manner, and the other side, well, of course, it's gone over the edge, and that's what they do. They lie. <coughs> so that uh, uh, the president can say there are Middle Easterners in this crowd coming here. Stop and think about all of this. The casual racism of it. What? So what does Middle Easterners mean? Oh, well, we know now. Middle East, if you're from the Middle East, you're a terrorist. Uh, and the fact that there are no Middle Easterners in that crowd, not a one has been found. You think if there weren't a, if there were a Middle Easterner in that throng of desperate humanity that all the reporters covering wouldn't pull that Mideasterner out in front of their cameras? <clears throat> These are people who have no, see no possible choice in their lives. They travel in these huge caravans for protection because if they come one by one or even in little groups, they are beset and besieged by highway robbers and rapists and they are told that they must pay somebody $10,000 to guide them these poor, poor people. So they band together because in a large group like that, it's true, no one's going to mess with them. And they flee hopelessness and they flee hunger and they flee terror, murder. And to listen to the President of the United States and his minions, it is as if they are some horror conjured by George Romero. It is as if instead of the children and the women, the young people you see in that group willing to walk, a thousand miles plus for a chance with no money in their pockets, no shelter, no food, nothing that desperate. 
and the White House and the media giving them all the air they want, talks of them like they are a zombie army invading us. And it works. It terrorizes. It terrorizes people. <laughs> I heard a woman, um, <coughs> excuse me, a woman in Minnesota <coughs> told a reporter that she was terrified of these people. Because a lot of the people up where she was, up around some little of the thousands of lakes in Minnesota, small town, people have summer homes that they stick on those lakes and cabins, and they're unoccupied right now in the winter. And someone told her, these zombies, these terrifying people, this army of Carving poor, frightened human souls is going to come to Minnesota and they're going to take over the cabins and summer homes. She's sure of it. <coughs> How do we fight how do we break through the level of mendacity, of collaboration by media and others, cooperation? How do we break through the fear <coughs> of, <coughs> excuse me, how do we break through the fear of gullible? frightened Americans like that woman who I'm sure listens only to Fox News and right-wing radio and her equally terrified neighbors. How do you break through? Yeah, the Democrats are a mob. Media is the enemy of the people. And these terrified, desperate children and their young parents are an invading army. And our president says he'll call out our military to stop him. Not the National Guard! The military. Yeah. This is a wonderful tweet that someone sent. That's right, terrified white people. The brown zombies are a thousand miles from the southern border and they're coming. They're coming 
to mow your lawns, to wash your cars, harvest your crops, pack your pork, raise your kids, mop your floors, vacuum your offices, and pay taxes. Run screaming for the hills. Thank you, Milton. Yeah. Well, I was against my better um, inclinations. I was watched some of Wolf Blitzer on CNN. I think at five o'clock yesterday and he had on his usual panel and they were talking about the caravan and one of the panelists said you know I I'm not even comfortable with us talking about this we're playing right into the hands of the White House. The president has called this a national emergency. This is no national emergency. And Blitzer said something like, but it's the president. We have to cover what the president of the United States says. The panelists backed up a little and said, well, I suppose. And I'm thinking, if what the president says is a lie, is a pack of lies, do you have to help disseminate that by virtue of the fact that he is the president of the United States and ever since we've had a president of the United States whatever the president of the United States says is newsworthy that was before this president of the United States and so to treat him and his utterances with the same gravitas that we have always treated other presidents' remarks. I don't think that argument works. This president has upended everything, and it's time for media to realize that and get out of there well this is what we've always done this is the tradition it ain't working what you're doing anymore I know you stepped up a little bit and it took you a while but now you flat out say the president said this and of course it's a lie <laughs> but I don't think that's enough 
So somebody else tweeted this. And here's a good, yeah, this puts the lie to what Wolf Blitzer said. Well, we're covering this because the President of the United States said it. And consequently, if he says there's this threat posed by these babes in arms and young people desperate coming our way, then we've got to cover it. And this tweet said, you know, the people who uh, decide what cable news is going to cover should try to ask themselves honestly if, uh, say, Barack Obama had tweeted one day when he was president, climate change and child poverty are national emergencies. Would they have dropped everything and done 24 hours, seven day a week segments on child poverty and climate change? Because the President of the United States said that. It's a national emergency. And the President of the United States is inherently newsworthy anything he says. Bullshit. <clears throat> Speaking of George Romero, Got some bizarre segues these days. Speaking of uh, George Romero, it is the 50th anniversary this month of the release of Night of the Living Dead, which was his, of course, seminal film, which he wrote, shot, edited, <laughs> directed. <coughs> And without a doubt, I just wanted to note that um, it is considered one of the most uh, important films sim by virtue of the fact that it launched a genre which exists to this day. The Walking Dead wouldn't be in their ninth season. <laughs> Um, think of all the, you know, cinematic rip-offs and they, he did the, he did it right here. He was a nice guy too. I had the pleasure of sitting with him in his uh, beautiful apartment on Neville Avenue or Street in Oakland long, 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 long time ago and, and talking about this movie. Anyway, most of us have seen this movie uh, with very poor image quality, muddy sound because 
I guess immediately after it was shot, it went into the public realm. It was not, he was a young, he was 20, what, 27, 28 years old. He was shooting commercials. He had never, he didn't protect it. It went right into the public realm. And uh, because of that, um, I guess it just sort of spread in this low, I, I'm getting all of this information from the Wall Street Journal today, and I'm, it was bad prints that made their way around. Um, but this story says that actually the film, the original film, was shot um, very carefully, well-lighted, good sound, but most of us have never seen it like that. So I guess what's happened, and this was the news, a 4K transfer of Night of the Living Dead is making its way into 600 uh, theaters in the, in the country today and tomorrow. Surely there's a one here. I haven't, surely one of them's here. But I, d I don't know that. I'm getting this from the Wall Street Journal. So just today and tomorrow, I mean a crisper, never-before-seen version. Although it will, I guess, um, also be available maybe on television uh, in that you know, better format, just want to say. Uh, it says here, the iconic horror movie is being re-released in select theaters in a 4K transfer. For those of you who are, can't get enough. You know what I realize, you know, I who always love sharing obituaries, I, I realize that what I love about them, because mostly the obituaries I share are of people who made a difference, who lived their lives and did something that moved things forward, um, not necessarily famous people. And I think because, for me, a life well lived is a reminder that people can be simply wondrous and wonderful and have an impact. And you know that I tend to be a bit of a pessimist. And so knowing about these people, being reminded of them is important for me. And I actually have, if you will allow me, I have two to share with you. I'll start with Todd Bowl, who, who is weird because I have been um, noting what he, b what he set off quite a bit lately by virtue of now having a dog <laughs> that I walk. 
And because I walk my dog, I am getting to know my neighborhood certainly better than I would have. And even little side streets that I never went down. And I remember the first time that I saw one of these things. I thought, what the hell is that? And I went and looked a little closer. And I thought, what a whimsical idea. I didn't think it made a lot of sense. And I think I noted it on this program. I'm sure I did. And this would be a few years ago. And it was one of those little libraries that somebody had stuck in their front yard, a little wooden, looked like a little house, and a glass door, and inside were books. And it said on there, you know, go ahead, take one, and leave one if you want. Please put another one back if you take one. can be any book. And I thought, wow, there was just something so sweet about it, so wonderful, so what did I know? So when I started walking my dog in the last few months, man, there's like four or five of them in my neighborhood. And I now stop and I look at the books inside and I keep trying to remember, you need to take some of your books um, and add them to some of these boxes because I've got books up to here <laughs> and never know what to do with them. So I'm going to start like just sticking books in as opposed to taking books out. Those little libraries were the brainchild of Todd Bull, who died at the age of 62 of uh, pancreatic cancer. And the first little library like that he built in 2009. And he was cleaning out his garage in a uh, little town in Wisconsin. And he had some wood. He saw some wood and he thought, yeah, it's nice wood. I don't know what to do. And he built this little house out of it. And he decided it was a replica of a schoolhouse because his mom had had uh, had been a teacher and had loved books. And he thought, I'm going to build this for my mom. She was deceased in honor of her. And I'll put some books in it. And I'll stick it on the front lawn. And he did it. And he says, I did it just to honor my mom. Built her this little schoolhouse, put books in it, and stuck it outside and told people, take one if you want. He said it was a spiritual gesture. That was 2009. He never sent out a press release. He never tried, he never went on social media to get this thing viral. He just stuck it on his front yard in a small town in Wisconsin. And today, there are over 75,000. I think there's got to be more if there's four in my neighborhood. Come on, 75,000 
tiny little libraries. And he now has a, he had a foundation. He founded a, f a, a little foundation called Little Free Library. And every state in the union has one, two, three, or a hundred. There are over 88 countries that are known to have them. They operate on the honor system. Go ahead, take a book. You can bring it back if you want, stick it in somebody else's, or, you know, drop a book off. In this country today, you can bump into one in a forest, down by a beach. There's a police precinct in New York City that has one. They're in cornfields, in malls, front lawns. There's one in a refugee settlement in Uganda. There's one in Siberia for reindeer herders who pass by. So here's a guy just honoring his mom, building that little thing. And the reason it spread is because people like, when I first saw one, looked at it and thought, wow, how wonderful, how whimsical, how, how unlike <laughs> what most things are. Here, take one if you want one. And it spread because other people saw it and were moved and his foundation now I mean you can order a kit on how to make your own and that kind of thing I mean some of them are rather as some Americans do there's a littlefreelibrary.org which offers the kind of specifications there are prisoners in uh, some prisons that make them there has never been any instance of vandalism. Todd Bull, just 62. And he did something seemingly <laughs> cleaning out his garage. I think I'll build a little schoolhouse for mom. And look what happened in just 10 years time it went all over the globe now isn't that better than talking about you know what and then I want to give you an obituary of a woman named Ray Montague uh, I'm thinking of how often we feel put upon and feel like it's, our lives are such heavy lifting. <sighs> the impediments that we encounter, that nothing's easy, you know? Damn. I want to tell you about the life of Ray Montague, so I don't, th so maybe next time you start bitching about things not being easy, you might bite your tongue. 
She grew up in Arkansas in not easy times for a black girl. She rode in the back of the bus. She suffered all the indignities of being a black girl in Arkansas. She was raised by a single mother and her mom was quite straightforward with her. She said, you got a lot of strikes against you, she told her little girl. And what she meant is, you're a girl and you're black and you're only going to be given the kind of education that a little black girl gets in a segregated country. But then her mother told her, none of that matters because you can do anything you put your mind to. So That little girl listened to her mom and said, all right, okay, I got these strikes against me, three strikes, but I can be anything. She once saw a submarine. Um, it was on display at, I'm not sure where, and a German submarine it was. It had been captured off the coast of South Carolina. She was seven years old, and her grandfather took her to see it. And she was allowed to look through the periscope. And she saw all the dials and the stuff, and she was blown away. And she said to one of the guys that was there, what do you, what do you gotta know to be able to know this stuff? And he said, well, <laughs> you gotta be an engineer, but you don't have to worry about that, honey. She never forgot. She tried to get into a college engineering program. She was told, no, we don't let women in. We don't certainly don't let a black woman in. But my God, she just kept The University of Arkansas would not let her in. So she went to Arkansas Agricultural, Mechanical, and Normal College. They let black women in. She graduated in 1956, but not in engineering because there hadn't been an engineering program. So she still, in her head, I want to be an engineer. She headed to Washington, D.C., got a job as a typist for the Navy. A black woman typist. And she just kept working. 
She became a digital computer systems operator. She began a com became a computer systems analyst. She said, I was working with guys who'd graduated from Yale and Harvard with engineering degrees. I was working with guys who'd worked on the Manhattan Project, developing the atom bomb. She worked with those guys, and then she went to night school, took computer programming. And then she had the gall to ask for a promotion. And her boss said, nah, listen, no, uh, you got to work nights. If I give you that kind of a job, you're going to have to work nights. She didn't know how to drive a car. She had no car. There was no public transportation. Did this stop her? <laughs> this young woman went out and bought a 1949 Pontiac for $375, and she taught herself to drive it. She would leave her house at 10 o'clock at night and just creep along <laughs> the roads and arrive at work for the midnight shift. I'll read this next part of the obit because to me this is just beyond belief. This black woman, if it's reminding you of something, it's reminding you of that movie, Hidden Figures, about black women who were these computer whizzes and physicist whizzes and, and engineering whizzes, often self-taught. So she's working for the Navy. And let me read this. The project that would be her signal achievement seemed to be an impossible task when it was assigned. And it was to lay out, step by step, how a naval ship might be designed using a computer. That had never been done. Her boss, who didn't like her, she was black, she was woman, said, I'll give you six months. What he forgot to tell her is that his department had been trying to do it for years. So she learned the computer system on her own. And then she told this boss that she had her own program and she would have to tear down the Navy's computer and rebuild it. And uh, she'd need to do that and she'd have, to, she'd have to do it like working at night. And he told her, uh, yeah, you can work at night, but only if someone's with you here. And then made it clear they wasn't going to pay anybody to be with her there. 
said it was too dangerous to be working alone here at night for a little woman like yourself. But I ain't paying anybody else to be here with you. And so, <laughs> she brought her mother and her three-year-old son every night. as she tore down the Navy's computer and rebuilt it to run her program. Finally, the boss, seeing her determination, gave her s a few people to work with her. She met the deadline, the six-month deadline. She presented him with her computer-generated design for a ship. President Richard Nixon, who had been on the Navy's back because he wanted ships produced at a faster pace, heard that this woman had come up with his computer design for an actual ship. And the president said, you give that woman all the help she needs. They gave her additional staff. They gave her an unlimited budget. And that led to her designing the first U.S. Navy ship with a computer program. And she did it in less than 19 hours. Ray Montague. She was given the Navy's Meritorious Civilian Service Award in 1972. The Navy began using her system to design all its ships, all its submarines. She began advising other governmental agencies and the private sector, including the automobile industry. The last Navy project she worked on was the nuclear-powered Seawolf submarine. At the height of her career, she was briefing the Joint Chiefs of Staff every month. She was teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy. Many, many of her ship designs are still in use. And not any of this was acknowledged outside the military until 2012. When a newspaper in Arkansas wrote a profile of her. She was not recognized big time until 2016, just two years ago. when the book hidden figures about all these black women mathematical geniuses at NASA and then the movie so the Navy honored her as its hidden figure last year and she was inducted into the Arkansas Women's Hall of Fame Ray Montague. 
died last week at the age of 83. What a remarkable life. Look at this just beautiful woman. Can you see her? Beautiful woman. So I read something like that, and I think, uh, wow. <laughs> I think, wow. For those of us who spend so much time talking about you-know-who and all these horrible human beings, it just helps so much to be reminded of extraordinary people. Oh, how nice. Thank you, Pastor Kim. Used to listen to you on the radio and I lost track of you. Just discovered your stream today. Your story about the man who invented the little lending libraries was just what I needed to hear. I've had a hard time getting out of bed lately because of everything. Keep it up. What you do is just like little lending libraries. Oh. Oh, thank you. Okay, developing story from Josie. Thank you, Josie. Uh, multiple bomb packages have been found around New York City. Bomb squads believe they are real. They've been found at the Time Warner at CNN's mailroom. George Soros's home, the Obama's former home, and the Clinton's former home. I believe the White House, too? I believe there are more people being evacuated all over the place. Probably some Democratic mob. No. Uh, Milton said the new 4K print of Night of the Living Dead premiered in Pittsburgh. <laughs> what do I know? Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that, but I didn't do it I, on uh, October 6th at a black tie event. That's right. I was not there at the Byam Theater. Although I had a funny experience when Romero, which dead movie premiered here? It was like, I think, his last one, and it had John Leguizamo or whatever his name is, and and it was premiered at the Byam Theater, and there was a, a pre-premiere event, and I'm remembering I was at the U.S. Steel, or the UPMC tower building for that, some venue there, and George Romero was there, and John Leguizamo was there, and I think Quentin Tarantino was there. Did I see him? I was blown away. I mean, I was going to this woo-woo-woo. And somehow I ended up in this stretch limo. This is what, you have a bad memory like mine. Ended up in a stretch limo 
leaving the U.S. Steel building and driving in it to the Biom. Of course, I could have walked it, but drove it to the Biom. And we get to the Biom in this stretch limo, and the Biom has, you know, it's a premiere. There's a red carpet. There are cameras. There are people all over the street. And um, the door opens. Uh, the limo, and I get out. I forget who I was with. I get out, <laughs> and <coughs> I remember some disappointed woman who was, like, waiting to see, I suppose, George Romero and John Leguizamo and maybe whoever, uh, these other Hollywood types. I heard some woman, as I got out, say, Ah, geez, that's just Lynn Cullen. And I thought, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I gave him a moment of like, oh, who's that? Who? Ah, shit, it's Lynn Cullen. <laughs> I was embarrassed, so I put my head down and got into the biome as fast as I could. I don't remember which one that was. Land of the Dead. That was 2005. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for remembering my life. <clears throat> oh, and thank you, Paul. Um, the 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 good version of it is at the Southside Works Cinema. And he's saying the 26th and 27th. What is that, like Friday and Saturday or something? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And... Um, Want to see if we got anything else here? No, I guess no. So thank you for all of that. I know I've taken a lot of time on stuff I don't usually deal with, but uh, oh gosh. So I thought of all that. I'm just gonna do one more Trump thing because I found it just so mind blowing. Oh, first of all, I want to say. If you want to know how evil the Saudis, the Saudi regime is, look at the picture that's put out by them today of Khashoggi's son. Looks to be like my son's age. His son, his grieving son, who lives in Saudi Arabia. His family is in Saudi Arabia. Somebody had asked the other day, why would he go back? Why would he put himself in danger? He missed his family so much. He was in self-exile. His son was forced to come to the palace and was seen and was photographed shaking the hand of the crown prince who had his father murdered and cut into pieces. You look at that picture. And then he had to shake the hand of the king. This is a kid who is essentially living in a prison in Saudi Arabia. And I would say if the United States is going to do anything about this. Get his family out of there. 
get that poor young man out of there. And I just want to mention the other thing I saw, that our president, when asked about the Saudi story, it was even too, it was too stupid a lie for even him to be able to swallow. That's how stupid. But it's what he said before he said it was a stupid cover-up. He said they had a very bad original concept. He's talking about a murder. They had a very bad original concept. It was carried out poorly. And the cover-up was one of the worst in the history of cover-ups. I hang my head in shame that this is the president of my country. All right. I'm sorry to end on that note, but I, 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 I just had to say it. Okay, guys, thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.